Welcome to Metro 30, the Metro Monthly's weekly conversation with the community. Hello, and welcome to Metro 30. I'm your host, Mark Paco. Today we have Sean Posey in the studio. Sean is a writer, historian, and journalist. Sean recently wrote an article for Metro Monthly on the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. We're going to talk about the article, how it's been received, and what the article can teach us about today's COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me on, Mark. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about the article. What did you discover when you were writing and researching it? Well, as you know, um, as a historian um, who primarily has studied American history, I was certainly aware of the Spanish flu. Um, but in my process of researching, I became much more aware of the impact that it had uh, across the world and here, and also uh, you know the fine details of of its impact on the area that I was only really vaguely aware of. And uh, it was really kind of a fascinating topic for me to actually go back and and dig into and research. Okay, well, the Spanish flu happened over 100 years ago. Uh, Why is it relevant today? And what are some of the most striking parallels that you see? Well, right away, and and you can see this in the the very first paragraph or two in the article, uh, the parallels were obvious reading through the old uh, Youngstown Vindicators and the Youngstown Telegrams. You know, the the empty downtown, uh, stores closed, uh, bars or saloons, as they called them back then, closed. Uh, general order from local uh, health officials for people to uh, avoid large gatherings indoors and outdoors. Um, you know, people wearing masks on the street. Uh, immediately, all kinds of parallels uh, to what's going on today with COVID-19. What happened in Youngstown and what were some of the trigger moments and how did things play out in the city? Sure. Well, um, the first documented case that, that, that historians can actually document, we're not, we're not clear if it was the actual first case, actually goes back to the beginning of 1918 um, in Camp Funston, which was part of Fort Riley in Kansas. And that was a camp that funneled a lot of um, recruits, mostly from rural areas in the United States, to um, the war front in Europe. Now, so the first relatively mild version of this flu is in the spring and perhaps the early summer of 1918, but it doesn't really get into Ohio until about the fall of 1918. So in early October, um, there is a influenza outbreak that is raging at uh, Camp Sherman, which was located just outside of Chillicothe. In fact, I found out by reading the old Chillicothe Observer that uh, according to them, they're reporting at the time about 60% of people in the city of Chillicothe had come down with the flu. This is at the beginning of October. About October 7th, um, there is a large parade held in downtown Youngstown of uh, Czechoslovak immigrants. Uh, According to the Vindicator, there was thousands of people that attended that parade, and then hundreds that uh, then attended a rally afterwards at the South High Auditorium. I read that and immediately I knew that that must have been a very big event that helped uh, spread the, um, the flu virus around. And sure enough, just a few days later, the Vindicator, which had only had sporadic reporting uh, about the Spanish flu, is talking about a uh, an epidemic outbreak in the area. And I'm I'm certain that 
that parade helped facilitate uh, the outbreak in the area. Well, how bad did things get in, in Youngstown at that time? You know, I, I think um, then and as, as now, uh, the worst outbreaks you would have found were in the major cities. But uh, things did get fairly bad. You can go through the paper and once this, um, once this outbreak in the area really gets started and every day, you know, it's, it's grim reading. You, the, the list, the daily list of people who died, uh, their names and where they lived is printed in the Vindicator. And you can see there are days where there are um, sometimes dozens of people dying. It was really, um, uh, you know, it was really a very serious business. And very quickly, the hospital system is overwhelmed and uh, the Red Cross is opening, uh, turning schools like uh, the Jefferson School, uh, Baldwin Memorial, which was a kindergarten in the downtown. And of course, South High School are being turned into emergency hospitals uh, just because it, it did not take very long for the health system to be pretty much overwhelmed by the outbreak. Now, in your article, you mentioned an author that wrote, she wrote a, a book about uh, the Spanish flu. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the focus was, what, her, what was her uh, emphasis in the book? It's a fascinating book that actually goes from the, the, the outbreak of the Spanish flu and, and documents it all across the world. Um, you know, it killed anywhere from, that we know of, it's very difficult to estimate, about two to 5% of the world's population. And most of those people were actually, did not die in Europe or North America. That would have been in Asia and Africa where people really, really got hit the hardest. However, she goes back into um, history to look at other pandemics and how, um, how people came to understand what a pandemic was, how the definitions shifted, uh, the difference between uh, bacterial um, outbreaks and viral outbreaks. It's really, there's a, there's a lot of science in the book too. Um, but what she kind of gets at in the beginning is, is the book is kind of an effort to uh, remedy what she calls uh, a collective forgetting, which I thought was a great phrase, a collective forgetting of the, the real impact of the Spanish influenza, which was something that uh, over time was kind of uh, pushed uh, to the back burner um, and replaced in the popular imagination with uh, the First World War, the Jazz Age, the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, World War II, the Spanish influenza. I, I would say really until very recently, maybe until just this year, for most people was, was just something that was just a big question mark in their mind. You know, after I read that, I I started thinking about how the Spanish flu falls in between two major events, World War One and Prohibition. And we know a lot about, you know, Prohibition, of course, and we know a lot about World War One, but the Spanish flu is really not that well known by a lot of people. No, it, it really is. And I think if... Um, we hadn't had this outbreak of COVID-19 where all of a sudden in, in many ways we're back to where we were in 1918 and people are back uh, quarantined in, in a more contemplative mood. I don't, I think it would still be in, in most ways forgotten. So I think this is really an opportunity for us to go back and, and to realize the impact that the influenza had. And as you mentioned, I think it really very much was overwhelmed by the war, which was just coming to an end as the outbreak was was gaining steam here. Um, afterwards, you know, there's a recession in the uh, uh, the end of the uh, 19-teens and at the beginning of the 1920s, of course, the Volstead Act is passed 
And pretty soon you're right into the roaring 20s and there's all these huge cultural and technological changes that are happening. And in many ways you can see how the flu, um, the flu gets forgotten. And I, I, another thing that Spinney mentions in her book that I think is worth recollecting, she says, um, quote, people regarded death very differently. It was a regular visitor. They were less afraid. So very much unlike now, people at that time, um, anybody who was of, of a certain age would remember cholera outbreaks, um, all kinds of other academic, uh, ap uh, epidemics that carried off large numbers of people. Of course, it was not uncommon for um, children to die uh, during childbirth or mothers to die during childbirth or for children to die at a very young age. Um, so the attitude towards death, not that people didn't, didn't see death as tragic, but, but the presence of death in a lot of people's lives is much different than it is today. You know, I was thinking that the 1920s are regarded as the first modern decade of the 20th century, but it's also, I think, one of the first decades where popular culture was documented through film and, you know, and, uh, and also popular song. And I'm wondering if the um, Spanish flu really had an impact on how the, the tone and, the, and, you know, and the exuberance of the 20s, in a way. Do you think that there's any validity to that? I think there is. Um, now, I don't know how far you could argue it, but I, to a certain extent, I believe there is. And a lot of people have talked about um, the war, uh, the fallout from the war. Of course, World War I was a war like no other, you know, in slaughter on an industrial scale. And the fact that a lot of people came back, artists, um, writers think about people like F. Scott Fitzgerald, who came back and maybe with a certain sense of fatalism, embraced a kind of wild and hedonistic lifestyle in the 1920s that I think in very many ways was probably a reflection of the terrible uh, time that people had come out of in the 19-teens, which would include not only the Great War, but I think, yes, also the Spanish influenza. Well, let's go a little bit closer to home. Uh, did your parents or grandparents ever talk about the Spanish flu? Were there any memories that were shared? When the, when the COVID-19 uh, outbreak started to become uh, a reality here in the United States, one of the first things that went through my mind was, and I can't even recall when it was, was my grandmother, who uh, my grandmother on my father's side, who had been born the beginning of the 20th century and lived almost until the very end of the 20th century, her mentioning at some point that her school that she had been going to at the time had been, and, and probably casually mentioning it too, this was a woman who lived through a lot of things, that her school that she had been going to at the time, which would have been in St. Louis, had been turned into a morgue um, and stacked up with bodies from people who were dying from the flu. Of course, St. Louis was a big industrial city at the time. And that stuck in my mind. Um, for all these years. And that was the, one of the first things that came back to me was just that one story, that one mentioning. And I would be fascinated to know how many other people who had uh, parents or grandparents or great grandparents from that time had heard any stories because I really had not. That was the only thing that I can remember being mentioned to me. But obviously it was an image that stuck in my mind. Now, when you approached me with the idea about writing about the Spanish flu, I, I, you know, I said yes immediately, but I also had some concerns. I had some reservations. I thought that, you know, maybe this topic might be a little too dark or a little too uh, heavy for people that were undergoing 
you know, a trauma of their own that maybe they didn't need one more thing. But what I found, though, was just the opposite. It's probably one of the most widely shared, widely commented on pieces that I shared on social media. And I find that really interesting. Now, can you give me your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I just looked at it and it's 248 shares on uh, just on the Metro page. And that I was actually pretty surprised by that. Uh, but now that I've I've thought about it and that I've read through some of the comments, I think that really the situation we're in now, you know, it's been weeks now since we've been locked down. And um, I think people, this allows people in probably kind of a unique way to go back and connect to uh, the history of, of their relatives and ancestors who are, are gone now in a way that wouldn't have been possible under, under any other circumstances. And uh, I think that even though, you know, what we're going through is, is tragic and in very many ways a, a very difficult situation, it allows people to, um, I guess, through the tragic nature, nature of history to, to go back and, and connect with people who are long gone um, who, who came before them. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a reminder of, of our past and uh, of our collective humanity, not just the collective humanity of people who are alive today, but the collective humanity of people who have survived or indeed perished through similar things in, in decades and centuries past. You know, I read through a lot of the comments, too. And and one thing that struck me, though, was that people in, in many cases were just very short and um, there wasn't a lot of detail in their recollections of things like they mentioned that maybe an uncle died or their grandmother died. And I thought that might have something to do with how little it might have been talked about outside of the family or even within the family. Do you think that there's any you know, possibly possibility that could be the case. I suspect that you're right. And, you know, thinking back to my grandparents, you know, they, I don't remember them talking about, I mean, obviously they went through, it was a generation of people who went through some traumatic things. The first world war, if you were, uh, as old as my grandmother, um, the great depression, uh, certainly the second world war, yeah, these are people who went through a lot of traumatic things. And I think maybe in many cases in the in the post-war years, it's got life got much more comfortable. And, you know, these kind of large tragic interruptions started to fade in the background. Maybe maybe it was just too painful to talk about. Maybe they thought that it didn't have any relevance to to, to life today. I don't know. It's kind of fascinating to think about, but I I, I do suspect that a lot of people just never heard very much from their older relatives about that time. But I, I couldn't put my finger on on why. Yeah, there was one comment that I, I found really interesting. Uh, a, a woman had said that at her grandmother's funeral, these people that she viewed as strangers were coming up to the family and saying that they were referring to their grandmother as their mother. She said that they were saying that they lost their parents and that her grandmother took them in and raised them. And I found that really pretty amazing that even that information was a surprise to some family members that it's that their grandmother would have taken in somebody like that. Yeah, that, you know, obviously 99% of these stories are going to be lost to time to us. Uh, but I suspect there's probably a lot of stories like that. And probably at the time, I mean, it was 
you know, life was very difficult during those times. People did things like that that were really heroic and in very many ways selfless, but maybe they didn't even think about it as that. Maybe these were just things that, that you did, um, help and kindness that you extended to relatives and friends and that they extended to you in a way that in our much more comfortable times today than maybe it just surprises us or we can't immediately uh, relate to. Yeah, another person mentioned a section of Calvary Cemetery where the infant children were buried. And I, I knew that because my father had an older brother who died as an infant. And this happened seven years before my father was born. But at one point, you know, we went to that part of the cemetery just to see because I, I'm pretty sure my uncle was buried there. And it's it was so sad seeing these tiny headstones all together. And you could see the collective grief that probably people had because many of these children were infants that, who had died. And, you know, and it really is heart wrenching to see that. Yeah, that's probably if you're trying to look for some sort of physical or visible connection to that era, that going to that section of the cavalry cemetery is probably going to be your, um, your best bet. And if you go there and yeah, you just look at, at the stones and first of all, you see how many dates are 1918. Um, and right away that tells you something. But second of all, all the stones of the, uh, of the young children that, you know, often they have like a lamb on them or a, uh, like a little angel or something, which other than the dates on the stone will denote that it's a very young person who perished. And you get, I think, you know, a kind of real visceral connection um, to that time period. I also want to go back and talk about how your article was received because of the subject matter. Uh, we didn't, we weren't really sure on how people might, might read it or perceive it. And, you know, I think some of it has to do with it being a, a perfect storm. Everyone is home right now. And, uh, you know, they're, they're paging through social media and, you know, and stuff like that. But this type of social history isn't, really generally what people gravitate toward and so because of that i think it has an additional it's of additional interest to me because uh usually people like maybe something a little bit lighter a little bit more nostalgic and this is really a pretty serious subject and i find it interesting that it you know that it not only appealed to so many people so many people shared it and so many people commented on it uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Yeah, you're right. This isn't, uh, and that's what I thought about when I was writing the article. This isn't social history that people typically uh, gravitate towards. Uh, but I wrote it anyway, cause I thought it was, it's important. It's historically important. It's important, um, to what's going on in the present day. So yeah, I was surprised that, that so many people, um, reacted to it that way. And that made me rethink the whole subject matter myself, the response to it. And I think some of the things you mentioned earlier, what we're going through now has, has made that period um, much more relatable than I think it would have been in, in, other, um, in other times or other circumstances. And I think it's great because I think anything, um, anything that allows people to go back and, and read about and learn from history and reflect on what people uh, have been through uh, that have come before them is is a wonderful thing. And not, not that what's happening now is a wonderful thing, it isn't. 
but if if there are good things that come out of it, this could be one of the good things is is a better appreciation for history um, and the history of of uh, not just this area but the history of the country and and indeed the history of the world because pandemics are are indeed nothing new. You know, it's, I was going to say that some parts of the article are very sad, but there's something strangely comforting about the article too because I think what it I think what it conveys in, you know, in the experience is that people today realize that they're not alone, even though they're isolated and they're you know, under quarantine and, or they're doing social distancing, they're seeing that they're not the first people to undergo this. So it's not like this feeling of, of abandonment or even punishment that they're seeing that actually they're also seeing with their grandparents underwent and in some ways if they didn't get the story from their grandparents they're understanding what their grandparents experience and in some ways they're being brought closer to their grandparents through this common event yeah i think maybe there's a lot of people who who read this and reflected on it and thought you know i didn't maybe i never really entirely knew who my father or my grandfather or my grandmother or great grandmother uh, who they really were uh, in the sense that, um, you know, obviously they, they knew who these people were having grown up around them, but they didn't know um, the traumatic things that they had lived through that obviously contributed to their character and who, who they were. And I, I think it probably a lot of people are, are you know, are, uh, appreciate their, their relatives who are now gone, but also maybe wish that they could go back and, and talk with them about it and, and, and ask questions that they never got to ask or never even knew to ask. And, and maybe one of the other things, though, too, is that there is a message in the article that people did survive it, you know, that they did, that it was something that, that eventually either dissipated or, or life went on. And, and maybe that also provides some degree of comfort for people, too. I think so. I, I think there's a, we're getting a, once again a greater realization that the that the human spirit is um, can triumph over a lot, and that people who have come before us have been through almost unimaginable hard times and tragic circumstances. And and yes, people have lived through them, and yes, they've prospered afterwards. So, I think though to to be aware of that is is also to be aware of the tragic nature of history, but it's also to be aware uh, of of the kind of hope uh, that, that exists there. You know, hope, hope dies hard and the human spirit really is in some ways uh, unconquerable. Okay. Well, Sean, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thanks for sp- spending it with us. And also uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts on what you wrote. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me on. I really appreciate it too. It's been great. Metro 30 is produced in collaboration with the Youngstown Radio Reading Service. Visit metromonthly.net for news, features, and the Valley's most complete calendar of events. And be sure to subscribe to the Metro 30 podcast.